This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk about what's going on in the markets. Business Week agenda. Let's set it. Gina Martin-Adams is Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone in New Jersey. Dave Wilson with us, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News on the remote access line from New Jersey as well. Gina, let's start with you. Watching the churn here, a little bit back and forth. Uh, I'm guessing investors kind of waiting for that monthly jobs report, even though we kind of know it's going to be pretty bad. But how do you see the market internals right now? Yeah, uh, we actually entered a little bit of a consolidation phase at the very end of April. I'd say it's just a tiny consolidation of a roaring, rip-roaring April gain, at least so far. I think that's actually taken quite a few investors by surprise. Many were thinking, okay, that this can't keep going. We can't keep we can't keep putting in you know double-digit pace of gains amidst economic weakness. But the reality is, uh, when the Fed is just pummeling the market with a tremendous amount of monetary policy support, quite the opposite is occurring. I do think that investors are getting pulled in in fits and starts to stocks, and that's probably going to characterize much of the summer months. So, Dave Wilson, earnings uh, still a part of this conversation. What do you see as you look a level deeper in the trade? You know, they sure are, Jason. And maybe one stock that's indicative of how the market's been going today is Walt Disney because, you know, results were out late yesterday, uh, didn't go over so well. I mean, fiscal second quarter earnings and revenue coming up short of what analysts were looking for. Uh, You know, they've got uh, theme parks closed. They got cruise ships that aren't going anywhere. They got films that aren't coming out. And yet the stock manages to rebound and then move higher. I mean, you could focus on their streaming services, I suppose. Certainly plenty of growth at Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and Hulu. And now you're looking at a stock that's a little changed. So there's definitely a back and forth to the market. And Disney is kind of indicative of that. You know, beyond that, you see sort of the old favorites kind of leading the way. The biggest technology companies, the FANG stocks and their peers. And on the other hand, uh, with bond yields going up as the government uh, lines up to borrow trillions of dollars in order to pay for its deficit spending. Right. Uh, you see utility stocks down. You see real estate shares down, financial companies as well. So some of the more interest rate sensitive areas of the market taking a bit of a hit here. Dave, you're teeing me up because I do wonder, Gina, you guys have been writing some research at Bloomberg Intelligence and you talk about this unconstrained federal spending and you combine that with trade policies that push back even more so on globalization, you've got upset supply chains. All of this could be inflationary, um, and we could see that start to pick up later on this year, and that could impact asset prices. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we did put a report on the terminal today just talking about the the actual results of COVID-19 and this devastating recession could be an inflationary regime change. We've been over the last decade, really in a period of time in which inflation inflation has continuously decelerated, most of that driven by the commodity complex, uh, as well as globalization of the technology-specific supply chain. And obviously, we have severe disruptions in energy, which are likely to constrain the supply of energy going forward. 
At the same time, you've got a lot of disruptions to globalization in the form of trade policy as well as technology-specific policy and enormous fiscal and monetary policy packages. All of these things combined suggest that when we do get through this recession experience, as we start to recover, uh, you might actually see an inflation outbreak. You might actually see inflation start to accelerate. Amazing, right? I would say that the other, the, the big unknown is what happens with supply chains. You know, obviously companies are incentivized to produce profit growth, and the fastest mechanism for profit growth is is margin growth. So they found lowest cost labor, lowest cost production facilities globally, a lot of those specifically in China, in order to create that margin growth potential. But if we do see a diversification of supply chains, if we do see a deterioration of the relationship between the U.S. and China, on top of all of these other factors, we very well may be in for a much different economic climate over the next 10 years than I think asset prices are currently prepared for, because I would argue that asset prices right now are completely captivated by economic weakness and deflationary pressures and certainly aren't thinking forward to a year, two years from now where things might be markedly different. All right, Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone from New Jersey, along with Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News on the remote access line from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Jason, I'm not sure what this means, and maybe nothing, but our story on the Bloomberg about the latest on the virus was way down the list. It was like number 16 or so Mm. among our most read when it has been among the top first few on a pretty regular basis. Interesting. Right? Since all, yeah, I was kind of shocked when I went looking for it today. Um, let's keep in mind the number of virus cases globally are past 3.6 million deaths, topping 258,000. Uh, so let's get an update on where we are. Dr. Ian Lusbader is back with us. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He's on the phone in New York City. Dr. Lusbader, nice to have you back with us. How are you? Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, uh, as always. Well, uh, so interesting developments, as always. Yeah. How, how, uh, are, how are things going? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, again, our tale of two cities, uh, good news and bad news in some ways. And I think for me, uh, helping in the intensive care units this weekend, um, I was really most concerned and struck by this population of patients with COVID on ventilators who really have not recovered. Uh, Fortunately, as we've talked about, you know, the majority of patients, we're guesstimating around 80%. You know, we see as outpatients cough, fever, chills, diarrhea, and they do well. And there's a population that unfortunately need to come into the hospital and uh, do deteriorate from these multiple clots and multiple systems. Uh, and in this particular ward, it's really sort of a, a chronic ventilator ward. Um, What I'm really seeing are families that are uh, not really prepared to to deal with these patients who are on a ventilator and with little chance of coming off that. And most have not been considering something called advanced care planning. In other words, they haven't had the conversation with their relatives, and many are older. They're 60, 70, 80. And never really had this conversation with them, and I think it's just very important to, you know, tell our listeners about that. Uh, and really, at any age, uh, to have that conversation. Many websites are available: CMS and AAHPM. Uh, 
American Association of Hospital and Palliative Care Medicine to really uh, find out about what are different kinds of life-sustaining treatments, uh, what treatments would the patient want should they be diagnosed with a life-limiting condition, uh, to complete a directive, an advanced directive, which may include a healthcare proxy, so someone knows the patient's wishes and they're mm. legally empowered to make decisions when they can't do it. There are things called a MOLST form or an electronic MOLST form, which is medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. So all of these things, I think, are uncomfortable for many people to talk about, but I think this uh, crisis really is an opportunity uh, for uh, people to have that conversation. I have to say, having had conversations like that with both of my parents who I have lost, it was very difficult, but it was necessary, and it was something they wanted to do as much as, you know, they wanted to be, you know, have some say in this. So it's really important. I agree with you that this is an important issue of all of this. It's so awkward when families um, have a loved one that has deteriorated, requires a ventilator, you know, with or without COVID, and often these patients mm-hmm. have COVID with uh, associated other, you know, illnesses, and are really unsure about what to do. The patient isn't getting better. They're very stressed, very sad. Prognosis may be very limited. They may have other issues, you know, underlying cancers, lymphoma, other other big strokes, etc. And it would be so much easier for the families had they had an understanding of what the patient would have wanted had they known they would be in this situation. And I was just struck by rounds in the ICU where just had had there been a little bit of this advanced care planning, uh, patients could be made more comfortable, families could be more comfortable emotionally with what's happening and with some of the difficult decisions that sometimes has to be made, you know, when patients are in this condition. Well, and I would imagine it's only exacerbated, and I think you alluded to this, uh, Ian, by the fact that oftentimes people aren't able, or really all the time in, in the case of COVID cases, family can't be there. And so those those conversations, you know, even when you as a doctor, I would imagine, are wanting to have a conversation with, with a family member, you're doing it over FaceTime or over the phone, and you can't sort of have that more sincere and, and moment where you're making some judgment calls. And, and I do wonder how those decisions have really change doctors to some extent, because, you know, you've been pretty clear about the fact that making some different sorts of decisions along the way, I mean, have changed doctors as as human beings and, and maybe as professionals going forward. You're exactly right. One of the, and this has been written about, one of the most sad aspects of COVID is really these patients um, dying alone or, or suffering somewhat. Of course, you're trying to alleviate any pain or suffering, um, but, but they are alone, and patients we know do better with connection, and only having a connection with healthcare workers, um, that's helpful, but it is a unique situation where families can't be at the bedside, and to me, it's uh, we do try and do those um, uh, visits by FaceTime and so forth, uh, sometimes the patients are not always uh, alert. Yeah. And so having this understanding, having these conversations, even reading about things now for healthy people, very important to get healthcare proxies early on and, and have think about what wishes would be helpful and, and make sure family members and healthcare proxies and paperwork is done right. so that if, God forbid, there's a problem, at least there's a, a game plan. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. And I do want to get his take on a headline, California reports 2,603 new virus cases, 
largest one-day jump. I do want to see what he has to say about, uh, you know, all or many states easing the lockdown restrictions. Let's continue our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center. As I said, our go-to doc when we want to really understand what's going on. He's been on the front lines, as he mentioned earlier in the conversation, working in the ICU. So, Ian, I have to ask you, we're seeing continually some troubling numbers as these cases rise, a record day in California on the other side of the country. Uh, We continue to see, even though they are declining, pretty big numbers here in New York State, and yet a lot of reopening going on, a lot of reopening talk happening. How do you square that? What's the medical side of this? Well, I think we're in uncharted territory. Uh, We have not had a pandemic like this. Uh, exactly uh, how to do this uh, delicately and balance the economy and people's psychology who are getting a little stir-crazy. You see them out on the street. You know, there's a higher volume of people. Uh, I don't want to say people are disobeying uh, home isolation, but people are finding excuses to go out, go to the drugstore, get a breath of fresh air. Uh, So I think the weather and time at home is, uh, is working against Uh, being very restrictive, which is a challenge. Governor Cuomo has commented about uh, seemingly uh, this uh, increased incidence of coronavirus hospitalizations uh, with people who seemingly have stayed at home and have had no exposure. Very hard to explain that. Uh, So there's really a push and pull with uh, trying to be 100 percent safe and reopening the economy. By definition, when people return without knowing their antibody status, uh, and we're sending a lot of patients for blood testing, uh, it's going to be impossible to send everybody to the lab for blood testing. And then what do you do if people don't have antibodies? Uh, Are they not supposed to go back to work? So I think this is a a work in progress. Uh, It is disturbing because the virus is clearly not going away. There's some evidence of people with antibodies or people who seem to get better with uh, COVID-19 and then within a few days or a week feel sick again and when they do nasal swabs find the virus there again. So we don't fully understand the virus. We don't understand why seemingly if you have antibodies you you can relapse. Uh, So uh, this is going to be a challenge but it seems to me at least that the wave of people who want to get back, uh, who need to get back, uh, are going to win the tug of war, and we may have to be prepared for uh, uh, for more cases, unfortunately. Well, that's and I, d- well, well, that's what, because, you know, we've had certainly statements from President Trump about this in, in terms of, you know, reopening, and I just do wonder if this is unfortunately going to have to be part of the process, because we don't know, as you said, um, Ian, we don't know a ton about this virus. And so, you know, we don't totally understand full immunity and how to get there. So I do wonder if these reopenings and unfortunately spikes are going to have to be part of the process. But do you, you know, as a result of these spikes, does that mean we should then also shut down again? Uh, you know, I would defer to uh, Dr. Fauci and, and uh, leadership uh, on this. Uh, I think it's going to be very hard to send people back, and I think that would really throw the economy into a serious tailspin. Uh, To me, it seems that we will have to uh, put our toe in the water, have people wear masks, 
uh, have critical services start back and uh, and then observe what the numbers are, uh, because herd immunity, as we've said before, is not going to be achieved by a vaccine, which is months or longer than that away. Uh, the vaccines haven't been developed. They haven't been tested. Uh, and we don't really know on a widespread scale, will they even work effectively? Things like the flu shot, you know, we know are not 100 percent effective. So I think no matter what we do, uh, a life will resume probably with masks and social distancing. And I think the number of cases will not drop to zero. Uh, hopefully, though, we will have better medications yeah. to uh, modify the disease to give people more hope. And certainly for those patients, as we said earlier in the show, that um, you know are chronically on ventilators, we need to have some conversations that advanced care planning that we talked about. So if people uh, do deteriorate or if they're older and right. have a high risk, at least there's some sense with a family about what their wishes are. Yeah. All right. Well, great stuff as always. We really appreciate it. Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center. It's tricky. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is a story that both Carol and I read, and I know a lot of people have read over the last couple of days because we're all looking for answers mm -hmm. and those answers are increasingly hard to find. This story is just one of these great first person pieces written by one of the best writers, I think, across the Bloomberg empire, Stephanie Baker. She's based in London. She joins us on the phone from there. Great to catch up with you, Stephanie. Thank you. All right. So tell us about this piece because you really just outlined and documented your trials and tribulations in trying to figure out whether you had COVID-19. Right. And, you know, I did this because um, I realized that I, like many other people, uh, had wonder was wondering whether or not I might have had it. Um, and I think I realized that a lot of other people were in a similar situation. And I had uh, written about antibody testing as, you know, being trumpeted by politicians as a way out of lockdown, but had talked to scientists who had criticized these antibody tests as being unreliable. So I thought, well, if I throw myself into this world um, and really do some research and test it on myself, I'll get to the bottom of, uh, of you know, how reliable, reliable these tests are. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, maybe it will be really boring and I'll just get, you know, a bunch of negative results. <laughs> Not and then boring. I won't really have a story. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Um, uh, and then so when, it, when I started out, I got a negative test, and I thought, oh, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to get a bunch of negatives, and I won't have a story or much to say. Um, and then the next test was positive, and I was really confounded. The third test was also positive, so I figured, well, two out of three, I, you know, the first test must be an outlier. By the time I took the fourth test, which was negative, I thought, well, two positives, two negatives. I have no clue whether or not uh, I've had it. Uh, and then I started. And you have a story. <laughs> you definitely have a story <laughs> there. I have a story. And I started to take a closer look at these tests. Why would I be getting, you know, differing results? You know, there's obviously a lot of these companies are claiming, you know, incredibly high, almost perfect uh, specificity, very high sensitivity rates. But what I realized is that some of them are testing different. Uh, antibodies to different parts of the virus. Some test just for antibodies against the so-called spike protein, which is a sort of calling card of this novel coronavirus. 
others test for antibodies against uh, something called a nucleocapsid protein, which are far more abundant and easier to detect. Some test for both, and I think that's one of the reasons why I got so many varying results. Oh, my God, so many questions. Because what's key about this, right, Stephanie, is that so many world leaders, and you write this in your story, have said that we need these antibody tests to determine who's had the virus, who has immunity, so we can reopen up the economies and so everybody can feel safe. But what I got from your story is that there are tons of different stories, different types of tests, excuse me, out there. And there are some differences between what's done in a lab versus what you can do, kind of a rapid test. And the problem is there's a lot of variation, right? So I feel like there's not a lot of certainty that comes out of these antibody tests. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, you know, one of the things I should say at the, at the start here is that um, scientists don't know if you have antibodies, how much protection they actually provide. Right. You know, many people, many scientists think that it will give you at least a few months of protection, perhaps several years, but the virus has only been around, um, you know, that we're aware of since January. Still, still so much to learn, um, and it's hard to, see, to, to study how long immunity lasts and, and, and what level of antibodies really provides you any protection. But my takeaway from this very unscientific little experiment I did was that these tests, by and large, are not ready for prime time. And um, I, I'm surprised at the overwhelming number of messages I got from friends and contacts and Bloomberg users saying, um, I got a test, is it correct? Or yeah. I'm going to get a test, and what do you think? Um, and, you know, other people who, like, who said, well, I took two tests and I had a similar experience to you. I got conflicting results. So um, I'm surprised at how much this story has kind of captured what is on so many people's minds right now. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot more research uh, into antibodies and how to detect them before we can think about rolling this out on a wider scale. And I feel like the conversations have increasingly moved from, oh my gosh, we figured it out, (laughs) you know, on one level, pre-vaccine, to wait a minute, it's not so clear cut. Um, You know, so I, I don't know, when you see the headlines when it comes to reopening economies and, you know, how long it's going to take for a vaccine, I don't know, what conclusions do you come to? I think everyone is going to have to be really cautious, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future until there is a vaccine, even if they've had COVID-19 and they've recovered and they've got perhaps a test that shows they have some level of uh, antibodies, because we just don't know how long that will last and how much protection it will provide. Um, And, uh, you know, I would agree. I think the only real comfort is when uh, a vaccine, uh, you know, mm. is found and is rolled out worldwide, which will take a long time. So, Stephanie, I do have to ask you, since since we have you here and, and you talk with, you know, high-level sources across the world, and especially there in London, yeah, like, what's your take on the return to work, especially among the financial community that we care so much about? Like, what are your folks telling you? What's the view uh, on the ground there? Well, again, I think, you know, there, there is a lot of stock and hope put into antibody testing mm-hmm. as one way to get back to work. Um, but, you know, I think the financial community has, uh, you know, done incredibly well in terms of working remotely. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think some of them are looking at how to get back to work, but perhaps 
continuing to work two to three days at home because they've figured it out and they've found a system uh, that works that, and that perhaps getting back to work is not going to be the same in any shape or form that, you know, do we still need these huge offices if I can, you know, effectively work from home, you know, full time. Um, so I think a lot of thought is going into what does that actually look like and how do we go about doing it in the safest way and long term, what have we learned from this period of working yeah. remotely? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, we're talking about it all the time in New York, too. And I do feel like, you know, London and New York are in many ways going to lead the way. They set the tone for, for so many things, whether it is on Wall Street or the city, the equivalent there in London, or when it comes to big restaurants and retail and, and all these different things. All right, Stephanie Baker, so good to catch up with you. Thanks for uh, spending some of your evening with us there in London. Financial Investigation Senior Writer for Bloomberg. Check out her story because it is – yeah. A terrific synthesis, startling and a little bit worrisome, but worth reading just because she does such a nice job sort of walking you through what she experienced. And as she pointed out, and unfortunately this isn't surprising, a huge amount of feedback coming to her, Carol, about other folks saying, yeah, that happened to me too. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's shift gears uh, because I love me some Liz McCormick. Yep. It's one of the most read stories. I think it was the most read story all day on yeah. Bloomberg today. How Ken Griffin's shutdown playbook has kept him on top of the markets. He spoke in a rare interview uh, about how he did it. So let's bring in Liz Capo McCormick, a Bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Um, so nice to have you here with us again, Liz. So tell us about this and getting access to someone who doesn't often talk to the press. Uh, hi, hi to you guys. I hope you're both well. And yeah, I mean, Ken was kind enough to talk to me. And, um, you know, they are a huge player. You know, treasuries are my thing. And, you know, their firm is very active in many markets, equities as well. But treasuries and Ken, you know, was kind enough to speak to me because I know they were among other firms that did a lot of work to, like you guys have been talking about, be able to function and make things happen with everyone at home. And like we laid out in this story, Citadel Securities creating, you know, on a fly, very, you know, high-tech remote offices and, um, you know, to try to, you know, serve their clients and make markets. But wait a minute, perspective. This company, as you say in your story, Liz, they trade, what, 3.3 billion U.S. shares a day. Right. They're even, even though I kind of love bonds, their main huge thing they do is equities. Like you said, they're a very big player in the equity market. And, uh, and they were higher. They, they did like a daily average in March, which was the mayhem month, month right? That that was higher than their highest level of 2019. So, so all this kind of Herculean steps they took seemed to pay off for them. So, Liz, you know, I have to say, I look at this as I think many do with something of a gimlet eye, and just think, man, these guys always figure it out and it's not necessarily a bad thing but it really is kind of amazing that if you have the resources to do it and look he moved fast to carol's point he moved very fast uh to get this done uh but it it almost just feels like a different playbook for a different set of folks well right i mean we have to be fair you have to have the the cash and capital to pull this off because you know it's and I don't have a figure, but of course it's costly to, you know, they had to get the local cable companies to lay fiber optics and do everything they do. Um, 
But it takes a lot. But, I mean, to be fair, many, I mean, you know, Ken Griffin is, is a special person as far as, you know, finances, but many on Wall Street, we've all talked to them, even the dealer firms, what they're doing to try to set up at home. And, you know, I think that's costing all these firms some money. But, yeah, I mean, Citadel Securities kind of has the heft and ability to do what, what some firms just couldn't. Right. And think about, I mean, right, we always talk about even in times of crisis, right, or or what have you, is that those who can move very fast uh, and definitely, you know, they stand to benefit, especially when it comes to the financial markets, Liz. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we've seen that through the years in in different asset classes, maybe Treasury is the slowest, but where it's become more about speed and, you know, the ability to trade and electronically and, you know, and kind of this became, you know, such a huge issue more than we ever even thought during this pandemic because who realized, you know, you you might be at home and you'd normally be sitting next to your five-year trader and you could just yell out to them and, you know, you know, it, it just was to a new dimension. Yeah, the, how, how much it was important to have the technology to do all this and the bandwidth and all that, which yeah. I'm no expert, you know. So, Liz, so let's play that out. I mean, look ahead because we're all trying to understand what this business looks like on the other side of this. Obviously, Ken Griffin was able to, as they say, sort of stand up an entirely new operation uh, in many ways and, and be pretty seamless. But on a broader level, we're all trying to figure out what does the workplace look like? What do trading floors look like? To your exact point that that you just made, what are folks telling you about what getting back to work really looks like, especially when you think about the New Yorks and the Chicagos of the world where proximity has been the name of the game for so long? Right, right. Yeah, I think, first of all, people are still trying to figure that out. But I, I think, and, you know, I was talking to some of our smart folks over in Business Week about this, that, you know, for the trading world uh, and the market makers, I think there's going to be even more of a new normal than we saw post like 9/11. That where a lot of firms created backup sites. Mm. I'm, I'm not saying Ken Griffin's team is eventually going to come back from Florida and stuff, but I think even the dealer firms, I think the equipment people who who got up to speed in a way they never had before of having X percent of their employees who could work like to full capacity, even at home, I don't think they're going to dial that back. You know, even if, you know, some of them are saying they're in the office more more often, right? But I, I think that investment from what I'm hearing is not going to go away, right? Um, whatever they had to do to set that up. So I think there there's going to be like you just, uh, not that God willing, we never have another pandemic or for another thousands of years or something, but that if something does this, it's going to be easier, you yeah. know, for firms to kind of quickly on a dime have, you know, half their staff not in the office. But I do wonder too, Liz, the ability by Ken Griffin, and, Ken Griffin and, and his team at Citadel, you know, being able to kind of move so quickly, get up, be involved, certainly in the trading activity of the market and helping to keep it liquid, how it helps maybe cement their place either within the Federal Reserve, whether within the government in terms of being able to help out in a future financial crisis. Well, I think so. I mean, that's something I asked Ken about because, you know, and I've kind of talked to them through the years. They've done a lot to lay the groundwork to, you know, you know, I mean, that's not a goal of theirs, but an ultimate may happen that, you know, their primary dealers, I think you're talking about, mm-hmm. Fed has their primary dealers that, you know, you know, work with them when they're doing open market operations. They're the counterparties, and th- these dealers have to bid at the treasury auctions. 
And, you know, Citadel Securities, it seems that they they are among what I see on my radar as, like, the likely next players. And that would help, you know, like, you know, Ken talks to that in the story, that, it, you know, it would be a win all around, like especially if you have one of the biggest dealers and treasuries that isn't the primary dealer. It, it seems like inevitably it will happen. And I know even, um, you know, the Treasury has a borrowing committee, and through the years they've really – change. They used to be always just the banks on there. And they've Mm -hmm. learned in recent years to add more of these electronic market makers, even to the people that advise them, because they realize, like you guys are talking about, that the, the, let's call it the microstructure of these debt markets have changed. So you have to have all the relevant players, even advising the Treasury, who just announced lots of new debt because we, you know, funding this pandemic, you know, economic hit. Another $96 billion, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, lo- <laughs> lots and lots. A new 20-year at a size no one yeah. expected how big it is. So, I mean, there's a lot of debt coming. Yeah, it's so fascinating to look at this because, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, literally – market structure here that that has been changed you know the way that we do business but also the way that that trades get done and and the different players as as you guys were just talking about mm-hmm. that you know have really emerged from this and and you do wonder i feel like the question that we're going to be facing so much over the next few weeks months you know maybe even years is what sticks from this pandemic. What is fundamentally uh, changed? So great to catch up. Both Carol and I, we're so excited to talk yes. to you about this story. Great story. Our Congratulations. To, yeah, it's really, it's really just terrific. Uh, a must read, and that is demonstrated by how many people are reading it on the terminal. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. John Pedrides is with us, Portfolio Manager at Tocqueville Asset Management, joining us on the phone uh, in New Jersey. So, John, nice to have you here with us. Uh, Interesting week, right? We're all kind of focused on that jobs report. We know it's going to be staggering, and yet when you see the numbers, it still definitely throws us off course. Tell us a a bit about your clients. Uh, You deal in wealth management. And I'm just curious about some of the phone calls you're getting and maybe any of the kind of tweaks you're doing to portfolios in this environment. Sure. Well, I, I think the initial wave of phone calls has really calmed down. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time in, well, we spend a lot of time talking with our clients during the course of any market, but specifically in March and early April, April uh, and we had a lot of client communication. But, you know, with portfolios rallying a bit here, and I think uh, everyone not only setting, setting into their new normal of, of their own social life and also the financial world, I, I think people are trying to adjust to see what the future holds. So by and large, clients have been uh, very well educated. You know, we've been through a lot over the past 15 years with the great financial crisis and now this pandemic, of course, with other market ups and, ups and downs. But by and large, clients are, um, are, are, are holding firm and and remaining calm and not panicking. Of course, we've entered this with balanced portfolios. So 
the, the fixed income portion of our allocation has held up pretty well. And so how long do you sort of sustain that strategy, especially uh, given what we saw in April? I know uh, May, at least so far, has been a little bit of a different story and earnings obviously come into it as well. But how long do you stay relatively conservative here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, you know by and large, you know, it goes without saying you start day one with the client earning there. Uh, financial objectives, goals, and, and income needs, and build the portfolio accordingly. But when you look across different asset classes, you know, I think we think yield is on sale. And we, we think the highest portion of the bond market has rallied uh, or has held firm where yields are just not overly attractive. And if investors are overly scared about the volatility in the stock market, what do you do? And, and we think that there's an allocation where you take some off of the bond allocation and, inha- and add to income-oriented assets. You know, we think we like uh, stuff in the preferred stock market. We think if you do your due diligence, high-quality, uh, high-dividend-yielding stocks where they have the balance sheet to support their dividend yield, uh, we think there's value to be had in some of the stages of the REIT market. So, you know, we do think there's yield portion, income portion of the market that are on sale right now that are very attractive. Wait, so you're saying at this juncture to maybe take some off the fixed income side of this balanced portfolio and shift into higher dividend yielding stocks? Not only just stocks, but so the answer is yes, but it's not okay. just stocks. We, we think with the, the, the programs that the Federal Reserve has put in place where they're out there buying uh, almost ever anything not nailed to the ground at this point outside of the preferred stock market, outside of the stock market, we think that yield-oriented securities are going to outperform because you're going to have a, a, a search, a hunt for yield. I mean, you know, if you're on a 10-year U.S. Treasury right now, you're getting 71 basis points. Right. Well, after inflation and after tax, it's a negative rate of return. So you start going down the credit quality stack, and with the exception really of the a high-yield energy portion bond market. You know, we think with, with the investment-grade bond market is actually open. They're having a record month in terms of issuance on the investment-grade side. There's yield to be had. And so what – I guess one of the questions, John, I have, especially at this point and especially as we hear political leaders talk about moving to this next phase of reopening mm-hmm. and not just the sort of lockdown mitigation uh, element – how closely do you as an investor and someone who's advising clients, how closely do you look at the, the sort of tick and talk of the medical side, the development of a mm-hmm. vaccine? How much does that ultimately drive your yeah. uh, strategy? Well, the assumption is that a vaccine will be found, right? The question is the time of it. And if you figure that China went on lockdown the beginning of January, the world started the clock, in my view, then to find a vaccine uh, or at least start the process of finding a vaccine to understand to to solve coronavirus COVID-19. So you figure we're about four months into the process. You know, if it takes, let's say, you know, we've accelerated the process. If it normally takes 18 months for a vaccine to hit the market, let's say it comes between 12 and 15 months. Now, there's two elements to look at. There's the element of how will the stock market react, and then how will the economy react. And the stock market will look through the bad data if we see that the vaccine is on the time on the horizon, uh, even though the economic data that comes in is going to be poor. So every, in our opinion, every day that moves forward is one step closer to finding a vaccine. Right. And then the closer that we do find to that, the closer that 
uh, we'll all be able to move on. Because once we all get the vaccine, then we're going to feel significantly more comfortable to go out to restaurants, yeah. to go to movies, to go right. to all these places, right. because we'll, we'll have some cure. Right, and we know the timeline on that can be anywhere from nine months to two years, depending on who you talk to. So uh, sit tight, everybody. (laughs) John Petridis, thank you so much. Portfolio Manager, Tocqueville Asset Management, joining us on the phone in New Jersey. We appreciate all our listeners. We know cell phones can be a little tricky in this environment, so we appreciate your patience uh, with that. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.